The 12-team college football playoff isn't even here yet, and it's already undergone evolution. The format has changed from a 6-plus-6 format to a 5-plus-7 format, increasing the number of at-large bids by one and decreasing the number of automatic qualifiers. Sounds like that would be good for the SEC. Hmm. No surprise there. Welcome into SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. John, the uh, college football news of the week occurred on Tuesday when the uh, College Football Playoff Management Committee approved this format change. Of course, this comes in the aftermath of the, uh, well, basically the disintegration of the Pac-12, the Pac-12 going from the Pac-12 to the Pac-2. And if you recall, John, back in August, uh, the body wasn't even cold yet in the Pac-12, and there was Greg Sankey going out on the Paul Feinbaum show show saying, uh, hey, Paul, I think we need to uh, change the playoff format in light of uh, the death of the Pac-12. How about we uh, reduce the number of automatic qualifiers and add an at-large bid? Well, lo and behold... Sankey got what he wanted. He always seems to get what he wants. Uh, this would seem to be good for the SEC. Yes, uh, an additional at-large bid. Yeah, and uh, get that Pac-12 body out of here. Go ahead, get 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 the body out, and uh, let's Bring talk the about the future. Their yeah. Pac-12's the past. No, it's just another reminder to me about the demise of pa- the Pac-12, which really never should have happened, but. Uh, it did, so we move on. Yeah, that was inevitable, though, that we would you, – you're not going to have the uh, Oregon State and Washington State fighting it out for a playoff berth, so uh, that had to come to pass. But you're right. It, Of course, it is uh, good for the SEC, perhaps good for the Big Ten, too. But I, I think when you look at uh, depth of teams that can make a, a, a playoff – um, the SEC still has uh, has the advantage on the on the Big Ten. It's helped that the Big Ten has added Oregon and Washington, but uh, still the SEC's depth of talent makes it the primary ven- uh, beneficiary of the uh, Pac-12's uh, unfortunate demise. So to to review this format that that was approved this week, this five plus seven format, that's five automatic bids for conference champions. So presumably the power four conferences would account for four of those five. And then you'd have your best group of five champion getting the fifth bid. First round buys will go to your four best conference champions. So in all likelihood, your power four champions would each get a first round buy. I like that. That preserves some value for the conference championship games, even say in the SEC, where you know if you make the conference championship game, you're going to be in the playoff regardless of whether you win or lose. There's something on the line. You win the conference championship, you get a first round buy. Now, the Big Ten and the SEC now, with this format adjustment, they could claim up to nine of the 12 spots in a 12-team playoff. Can't claim all 12 because of those five automatic bids, but they can claim up to nine. If you're shooting from the hip here, John, in mid-February, of those nine spots they're eligible for, how many do you think the SEC and Big Ten 
will get. Do you think they'll they'll claim all of the at-large spots? Is what I'm asking, or do you think one other one or two other conferences will maybe get an at-large bid this season? Uh, that's a tough one from this vantage point, but I I think the SEC will get five bids in that situation. Okay, so they'll get four at-large and one auto bid. You're saying that's, that. That yes. leaves three at-large. If they're getting four of the seven, that leaves three at-large bids. Do you think the Big Ten could claim all three? Or are they going to have to settle for two out of three? Um, maybe two out of three. That would uh, require Penn State to step up. Well, but you got the newcomers in the Big Ten. Don't forget, yeah, you got Oregon, we do. Washington, we do. Southern Cal. Um. Yeah, so I guess when you factor that in, uh, Oregon's looking pretty good right now at this, uh, based on what it's been doing. Um, don't maybe, maybe it would require is. Penn State to step up though, because if you're thinking Ohio State, Washington, Oregon, that's one auto bid plus two at larges. So then the question is, who is that that additional at large team, so that all the bids would go to the SEC and the Big Ten. It's possible. Maybe Penn State, maybe Southern Cal gets it together, although I'm a little skeptical of that. Well, here's the thing, Blake, is uh, I wonder now if there will be – you don't know how this will go, but if we, it's it's almost as though we're going into this brave new world with the idea the SEC and the Big Ten are the strongest conferences. So – and with because of expansion in part – uh, so we're assuming they will always, they'll have that strength of schedule in that favor. So because you're doing business in those conference, almost every game becomes, uh, helps your, uh, strength of schedule. Uh, so I wonder as opposed to say the big 12 or the ACC, I mean, is it really that? hard to imagine two teams from one of those conferences being really good, being playoff worthy. No, it's not impossible to imagine. Like you could see a scenario where, you know, say Florida state and Clemson both build playoff resumes. Um, You know, big 12 maybe is a little bit harder for me to imagine. I, I think the big 12 is, is well positioned for its basketball future. I think it's going to remain the best basketball conference. But as I think about the big 12 with Texas and Oklahoma, removed from the fold, I maybe see a um, fewer opportunities where it would have multiple playoff caliber teams. But I think in the ACC, would, as long as Florida State and Clemson stick around, which uh, yeah. depending on who you ask, doesn't seem like they're going to stick around that long or they don't want to stick around. Certainly Florida State has made that clear, but they're having a hard time finding the trap door in that grant of rights clause. Uh, but as long as those two teams are in the ACC, I could see the ACC, you know, snatching two bids for as long as this format lasts. And that's what we'll get to next because, well, this format is only approved for the next two years. And then after that, it's a blank slate. We don't know what the playoff holds. What is your guess as to what the playoff will hold starting in 2026 after this current playoff contract expires? Well, I think a 16-team deal is uh, is virtually assured, um, and I think that would be the likely next step. Um, I think when we, when people look at this playoff, 
Yeah, we went so many years, decades, in fact, without a playoff. And now it's as though we're into the playoff era and everything's speeding up exponentially. And it's as though, okay, we got to get more teams, more teams. Almost as though you're looking at it through a basketball lens and people are looking how great the NCAA tournament is with all those teams. So we need to we need to shoehorn more uh, football teams into this playoffs, into these playoffs. But what what concerns me about that is are these at large bids? I want the conference season to mean something, and if you get sixteen teams in there. And you start doling out more at large bids. It, when you're talking about six or seven teams from a conference getting in there, that's that's troublesome to me because if you will play a team during the regular season and you win that game, I want that to matter. I mean, if Georgia and Alabama line up and Georgia beats Alabama, okay, you won the regular season game, but now let's see you do it again. Uh, okay, you do it again in the SEC championship game. Georgia beats Alabama again. It's 2-0. Okay, that's great. You're doing well, but now you got to prove yourself a third time in the college football playoff. That, to me, would would border on absurd. If you're going to go that route, then uh, I almost wonder if you have to – and this wouldn't fly because (laughs) – Everything seems to be going the SEC's way, but it almost to me like you need more conference involvement, uh, different conferences if you go to 16 teams. Yeah, I agree with you, John, um, for all the reasons you, you've laid out there. I The only way I would like to see a 16-team playoff is if you increase the number of automatic qualifiers up from five to, say, six or seven. Um, however, as you just said it, Greg Sankey's not going to go along with that. Tony Petiti from the Big Ten, he's not going to go along with that. I mean, th- those guys don't care about what's good for the Sun Belt or the Mountain West. Um, a 16-team playoff, if it goes that route, you would have to think the way they would expand that is going from seven at-large bids to 11 at-large bids. And I think you hit the nail on the head. At that point, you could envision a year where almost half of the 16-team SEC qualifies for the playoff which is going to water down the regular season there's just there's just no other way around it and so to me i kind of like this five plus seven format actually this this 12 team playoff i hope it has a chance at lasting longer than just the two years although i'm skeptical that it will because i think the sec and the big 10 are going to go hunting for even more spots and and change the format in a way that will further favor favor them but if the format does have to change, rather than go to 16, I guess I would prefer a smaller increase to 14 teams. The top two teams would get a first-round bye. Um, and so that would preserve a lot of value for your conference championships. You know, there's only two buys. Presumably, whoever wins the SEC and whoever wins the Big Ten could get a coveted first-round bye. Uh, and then you would have the other two teams, or excuse me, the other 12 teams playing first round games. And what would come of that would be, you know, eight teams remaining, the two first round buys plus the uh, the six winners of those first round games. I don't have any problem really with the current for format of 12 teams, but if it does increase, 
I guess I would favor it going from 12 to 14 because, as you just said, the bigger and bigger the playoff gets, I think the less and less the regular season starts to be meaningful. Yes, and I I think back to when I used to always, I mean, 40 years ago, I can remember writing about a playoff, and um, I guess I had it as a probably an eight-team playoff Mm -hmm. uh, back then. Uh, To preserve the integrity of the regular season, I really believe strongly that you've got to have more conference teams in there. One, One of the things we talk about have talked about through the years is when some outlier team from some uh, other conference, now we give them a name is like the group of five, like, well, you're, you don't have real programs here, but you know, they're kind of nice and they can be entertaining. So you can have your own designation, but don't go consorting with our guys. Uh, I think uh, sometimes there've been what seemed like, super teams come out of there but we don't know how super perhaps they would be revealed as a fraud in in head-to-head competition but another thing to consider is the nil and transfer portal i think uh these powerhouse programs might be less powerful in the years to come and that way there would be a possibility because they can't maintain the depth. When they lose players, they can't plug in another future NFL or right away. Uh, I'm just thinking that also that maybe some of those transfers go elsewhere and perhaps you could have a a San Diego State or a Utah State or some a program of that nature that has a really good team and could be competitive. Uh so, gosh, it would, I mean, the way, when you're asking questions about this, I'm thinking, I mean, it's like you're, you're kind of turning this and it's not you, but it's the way it's going. And you're foreseeing that it's like big 10 and sec, everybody else just get out of the way. Yeah. That's why it's kind of comical to me a couple of weeks ago when this sec big 10 advisory group, as it was called formed. There are all these headlines about, ooh, is the SEC and Big Ten going to break away and stage its own playoff? And I thought, why do they need to break away and stage their own playoff? Because they are they can just hijack the current playoff. I mean, as we're seeing here, they're already eligible for 75% of the bids in the current playoff, and this contract's going to expire in two years. And I guarantee you, Greg Sankey and Tony Petiti from the Big Ten are not going to sign on to any future playoff format that doesn't favor their conferences. So rather than break off and hold your own little eight-team playoff, you could just have a 16-team playoff in which you get 13 of the 16 bids. Uh, And you offer a little bit of token representation to the Big 12 ACC and say whatever the best Mountain West or American Conference team is, right? You you let them play in your sandbox, but you shove them off to this little, little corner of the sandbox while you get to rule the best toys, uh, the most revenue, and, and have 80% of the fun, right? Um, I, I think that's a much likelier landing spot in in the future of the playoff. And I'm not saying that's what I'm rooting for. I, I don't know that it's the best for the sport, but I, it, when I think about what's likeliest, I think the SEC and the Big Ten stay in the fold, but I think they continue to push for formats that gives them more and more of the revenue and more and more of the access 
to to the playoff. So, I mean, I think really, if Greg Sankey could just wave a magic wand, he might have a 12-team playoff with no automatic bids. And so the SEC conceivably would be eligible for all 12 spots, or at least the SEC and the Big Ten. But he might play along, sort of go along to get along and say, yeah, we'll, we'll go we'll go to 16 teams, five auto bids, 11 at-larges. Uh, I, I could see something like that happening, which I'm with you, John. I, I think even though we know the SEC and the Big Ten rule the sport and and we live our lives in SEC world, right? We make our living off of it. It is, I think, for John Q. College football fan, I think it's nice for them to believe at least that your team has a shot of making the playoff, maybe winning a playoff game. Um, that's the beauty, I think, of this this upcoming 12-team format. If you're a Boise State fan, maybe you don't think your team can win the national championship, but at least now you have a shot of making the playoff and maybe winning a playoff game. That's the beauty of March Madness, is not those teams thinking that they can win the whole thing. It's get an upset or two, right? Grab the moment for for a week or 10 days. Uh, make a sweet 16. To me, that's the beauty of this 12-team format. It preserves a little bit of access for the other conferences, they're probably not going to win a national championship, particularly the group of five, but they could upset somebody in the first round. Well, if you when you talk about the 12-team playoff and all the possible bids uh, the SEC and perhaps the Big Ten as well could have, it's almost as though you're going to a super conference without actually calling it a super conference because you give other teams the opportunity even though the opportunity isn't as real as it is with the Big Ten and SEC, it gives you a chance. So, hey, you can still play. You, you, you know, you're still, you still got a shot at winning all, hoisting that trophy. Good luck with that. Right. But, you know, there's no benevolence in play here. I mean, this is big business, and what what increases it is with. The, the SEC and Big Ten have these networks lined up behind them. So it, it's not just the conferences themselves. It's the conferences plus the networks who are paying oodles of money for the rights of that program, those programs and those conferences. So, yeah, the power is all on their side. And, gosh, it, it will kind of make you almost root for – Somebody like Oklahoma State to win it all, you know, uh, or even and here's some irony in that is Clemson ha has been. I know the last couple of years it hasn't been quite as strong, but it's still solid. Clemson is so much better than most programs in the Big Ten and a lot of programs in the SEC, but it's still on the outside. No, you're not. You're not quite good enough. You don't have uh, you don't have the right card to get in. I mean, you can you get access, but not complete access. So, I mean, this is a very accomplished program, and we're talking about recent history. And Florida State, if you go further back, it had well, it had a dynasty. Uh, so that's that's one thing that's interesting to me is teams and schools. I mean. You go to a 16-team playoff, I mean, are we going to be looking at a game between Illinois and Missouri one day? Maybe Missouri. I don't know about Illinois. 
<laughs> Missouri, I think, could make a 12-team playoff this year. Uh, I'm not sure <laughs> Illinois could make a 60-team uh, playoff at, at, at this point. But point taken. Uh, all right, we will leave the, the playoff there because, uh, who knows, it may evolve again by this time next week. We want to transition to, to Alabama, John, because uh, Kalen DeBoer has finished off his inaugural coaching staff in Tuscaloosa, and it does not include Ryan Grubb, his, uh, his sturdy right-hand man who'd been his offensive coordinator at multiple stops across many years. He looked like he was going to be the offensive coordinator for Kalen DeBoer in year one in Tuscaloosa, but not so fast. Ryan Grubb is off to the NFL. And so that means Nick Sheridan is Kalen DeBoer's offensive coordinator. He was formerly his tight ends coach at Washington. Just how big a deal do you think this is for Kalen DeBoer, John? Because it, it almost seemed like they were, I guess, not necessarily a package deal, but the presumption was if you hire Kalen DeBoer, who's an offensive-minded coach, he knows that side of the ball, but you thought you were also getting Ryan Grubb, who had been uh, one of his top lieutenants, dating all the way back to when Kalen DeBoer was coaching in the NAIA, then at Fresno State, and later uh, at Washington. So how notable do you think it is that DeBoer is not getting his top choice of OC with Grubb going to coach uh, the offense for the Seattle Seahawks, and he has to elevate tight ends coach Nick Sheridan up to the OC position at Alabama. Yeah, I think it is significant that Ryan Grubb didn't go with him. We think of those guys as a package deal. There's so much change going on here. It's a big transition. Uh, anytime you change schools, I think it's a lot, it's a bigger transition when you go from uh, Pac-12 country to SEC country. I think SEC is so different than everywhere else. The competitive level is different. The recruiting competitive level, level is much different. So you want to try to preserve as much continuity as you can, and I don't. that's not happening now. Uh, another aspect when I look at this is that uh, that was interesting to me is that two Washington offensive linemen, I think one started eight games this year and maybe another, almost that many. Two uh, on what was regarded as the best offensive line in the country. It won the Joe Moore Award, which goes to the supposedly best offensive line. Uh, both linemen transferred to Ole Miss. Now, I thought that, well, you know who your coach is. You could go with your coach to Alabama, why wouldn't you transfer to Alabama? I don't raise the question with me. Maybe they think Alabama's offensive line is so good we couldn't start there. I don't agree with that. I didn't think Alabama's offensive line was anything special last season, and it's losing some guys. So I wondered about that too. And and so I just think uh, Kalen DeBoer is following a legend. And you need every weapon you can muster to take on that challenge. And I think he lost one when his offensive coordinator decided to go the NFL route. 
Yeah, and, and Alabama did get some transfers from Washington, including an offensive lineman, but you are you're right that a couple other guys did transfer to Ole Miss that uh, presumably could have could have helped Alabama's depth at the very least as well. And yeah, I think this is like not five alarm fire losing Ryan Grubb because that's the side of the ball where Kalen DeBoer, you know, has his expertise. He's a, he's an offensive minded coach. However, I think you would like to have your longtime lieutenant there alongside you running the offense. So as you adjust to, you know, a new conference, um, you know, the biggest role of your life that you've ever had coaching Alabama, you might be able to, to go to sleep at night and know the offense is handled. Ryan Grubb's got the offense handled. I can, I can put my attention elsewhere and some of the other things that I need to be up to speed on, uh, on, on the job. Now, you know, without having him there, it's not like Kalen DeBoer's never worked with Nick Sheridan before. They have worked together at Washington, at Indiana, but still, you know, he doesn't have the experience running the offense uh, to the degree that that Grubb had. So I think, you know, this could pull DeBoer's attention back away further toward the offense and, you know, overall hamper his ability to kind of be the CEO eyes in the sky. Speaking of eyes in the sky, John, uh, Nick Saban was asked by uh, reporters week recently at an event in Birmingham just how involved uh, he's been with Kalen DeBoer's coaching staff. And uh, here's what uh, Saban said, uh, according to ABC. He said, quote, I talk to Kalen every now and then. I also talk to the defensive coordinator, Kane Womack, every now and then. And he, Saban elaborated that uh, he was going to meet up with defensive coordinator Kane Womack uh, sometime in the days to come. I'm wondering, we, we've talked about this before, John, but I'm wondering if you s- see this still more as an advantage for Alabama to have Saban in this advisory role, to have you know direct access to this great coach, greatest of all time. He's He's working across campus when he's not on the golf course or not working for ESPN or not off to his dream house in Jupiter Island, Florida. He's still got an office on campus. Um, but the, the natural other question is, you know, who's in charge here? How, how long of a shadow is he casting? You know, are the players looking over their shoulder wondering, uh, you know, who, who's, uh, who's, who's the top dog here? Is it Kalen DeBoer? Is it Nick Saban? I guess I tend to still think that it's more of an asset than, than a hindrance. But as you kind of digest these recent comments from Nick Saban about, uh, you know, his availability to Kalen DeBoer and defensive coordinator Kane Womack, I'm, I'm wondering what you think uh, about Saban's continuing presence around the program. Well, uh, my initial response, I think, was the same as you. I think that he could ease with the transitional uh, phase of this. Also, I don't think of Nick Saban as uh, someone who would want to be hanging on. Uh, I I think if he's not running the program, he might rather put some distance between himself and the program. But the more I thought about it, uh, another aspect, Nick Saban's very appearance uh, could be a negative factor for Kalen DeBoer because every time you look at Nick Saban, you think about that Alabama, compare it to the current Alabama under Kalen DeBoer. He's an ever-present reminder of what Alabama football once was, and I don't think it will be that under Kalen DeBoer. 
and and that's not just that's not a knock on Kalen DeBoer. You can't follow the greatest coach of all time. You can't follow a dynasty and expect to maintain the same kind of success. It just doesn't happen in sports with rare, rare exceptions. So I would think, I don't know, it, it could be a negative. What, what about this, though? What if things go badly? Just Alabama struggling two years from now. Are, are you envisioning a Philip Fulmer type uh, overthrow where uh, Saban tries to reclaim power? Is this a path you're going down? John, of, hey, hey, get the old coach back in there. No, he wouldn't oh, okay. have to try and regain power. He could just it seize would it. Be, it would be others coming to him, and it would be not regaining power. It would be, please come save the program. Bill Snyder made a comeback at Kansas State. Uh, Nick Saban's away from the game uh, for a couple of years. Um he gets uh, bored. Um, everybody's saying, please save us from these eight and four seasons. And uh, maybe he's tempted. He seems to be in good health. So I don't think that might not be a factor. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying, though, with his presence around the program, it raises that question. And Surely some Alabama th- fans would think that. I, I mean, you know they would. Oh, well, no, no question we, about that. Yeah. Maybe we can bring Coach Saban back. Maybe he'll come back. He he owes it to the program. Uh, so maybe I guess I'm leaning toward the, si- uh, the uh, side of the uh, debate that maybe it's not that great a thing right now. Well, Nick Saban might be in Washington, D.C. by then. Anyway, I saw a poll this week. John, uh, I believe it was con- conducted by YouGov. They do a lot of polling, and uh, they polled whether um, Alabama residents would vote for Nick Saban as a Democrat going up against Tommy Tuberville as a Republican in a U.S. Senate election, and Saban was leading the polling, perhaps the only person that could run on the left side of the aisle in Alabama and win a uh, U.S. Senate seat against Tommy Tuberville. So, you know, maybe maybe Saban will just wade into politics, even though he's consistently maintained, uh, I believe, at least publicly, that that's not a road that uh, he wishes to to go down. But don't want him to be the coach? Eh, just ship him up to Washington. What what, what say you? Ah, that's uh, – I can't see – Nick Saban uh, – Operated Alabama with almost complete autonomy. I, I can't see him in a, in a in a role as he's in in Congress in the Senate. I I could never imagine that with ninety nine peers. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah, good good point. I, I want to for our final discussion here, John. I want to pivot back to the college football playoff. We we opened. Uh, with that, let's close there too. We've talked about the SEC and the Big Ten as if they're the superpowers because, well, let's face it, they are, particularly in their expanded futures and as they claw uh, even more and more revenues into their coffers. But from a strictly playoff sense, if you're uh, if you're the coach of a program, let's say you don't get to coach Ohio State and Michigan, Let's remove those from the equation. And let's also remove uh, Georgia from the equation. You're coaching some other random program 
in one of these two conferences. Would you rather your program be in the Big Ten or would you rather your program be in the SEC? I guess what I'm asking is, you know, assuming you weren't coaching Ohio State, Michigan, or Georgia, where do you think you'd have the better chance of making college football playoff with some level of regularity, of making a run at a national championship from time to time? From which conference would you want to be in? Oh, I definitely would want to be in the Big Ten, no doubt about it. Yeah. I because mean, you think the path is easier there? or Yeah, you, you, you've got an easier road to the playoffs in the Big Ten. The thing about the SEC is there are so many schools that in a given season could be playoff worthy, maybe even national championship worthy. I think there's going to be – there's a big difference – uh, it'll be a bigger difference if we go to a 12-team playoff, or I mean, a six. If we go to a 16-team playoff, there'll be it'd be a bigger difference in, in in making the playoff and being a strong national championship contender. There, there are not that many. To, you can make the playoff, but okay, you've overachieved and made the playoff, but you're still not going to win the national title. I still think there are a lot of programs in the SEC. Uh, that can have legitimate championship aspirations, more so, more so than big. T- I mean, we you're adding two schools. The big, the ten, uh, SEC's add, adding two schools in Texas and Oklahoma, and you could say, well, the big, the Big Twelves. I mean, the Big Ten is averaging adding uh, Washington, Oregon, and Southern Cal. Well, Washington won a national championship in the early '90s. When has Oregon won a national championship? Uh, Southern Cal won one in uh, 2000 and uh, what was it? Five? I yeah, guess? during Pete Carroll's dynasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the 0304 didn't win it. 05 lost to Texas. But so, yeah, that, that's a long time where you've seen like Auburn won it in the SEC in 2010, almost won it in 2013. LSU's won it uh, a few times. Uh Florida's won uh, a couple of national championships in the 2000s. So yeah, you just have an easier path in the big in the Big 10, even the the expanded Big 10. I would still rather uh be in the Big 10. And to me, another factor there's some there's some teams in the SEC that might not be good enough to make the playoff but they're good enough to beat a playoff team. And I'm not, I think there are more of those teams in the SEC than they are in, um, in the big 10. Yeah. I think, I think that last part maybe is uh, what would win me over most is that in the SEC, if you got Vanderbilt on your schedule, you might like your chances that week, but other than Vanderbilt, I'm not sure, you know, if you're a mid card program, in the SEC, you're probably not taking many of your SEC opponents for granted or, 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 you know, chalking them up as, as near auto wins other than Vanderbilt within the big 10. I think you got a handful more of those teams. You know, if you're say at Penn state um, or at Oregon or at Washington, you're probably liking your chances before the season even kicks off. If you've got uh, Northwestern, Illinois, Purdue, Indiana, may Rutgers, those types of programs on the schedule. I, I think I think the list is longer 
there. And I'm not putting any of those programs down at Vanderbilt's level. Vanderbilt enjoys a basement uh, exclusive to one. But, you know, they would be on that tier just above a Vanderbilt, whereas, you know, I think your your lower end programs in the SEC, it's still a little bit in, in an average year. It's not always the case, but in an average year, uh, I think it's more of a murderer's row in, in the SEC, even in the bottom half of the conference. Uh, whereas the Big Ten, you know, I think the top three or four teams in the Big Ten in a given year could probably go toe-to-toe with the top three or four teams in the SEC. But it's as you get into that midsection to the bottom section where I think the SEC currently is tougher and, and will remain tougher. I think another factor in the SEC's depth of uh, talent with teams are there they're just some long-standing rivalries. And rivalries uh, – uh, produce, I won't say hate, but let's just say significant dislike. And there's a real joy for some of those teams in beating a better program. They, they want to see that that program, those fans, those opposing fans suffer. So I, I think, for example, uh, Ole Miss has really come on great under Elaine Kiffin. Tremendous success. And it has a better program than Mississippi State. And it has better talent. But when those teams play in the last game of the regular season, I wouldn't rule out a Mississippi State upset. And part of that is just because the intensity that comes with that game, an in-state rivalry with players who that can make a season for, for the underdog. And it might have just enough talent to pull it off. I mean, you, you, appropriately uh, discarded Vanderbilt, like it's not going to be a threat to Tennessee uh, uh, unless some uh, dimwit is coaching Tennessee. But I think with, uh, but with Mississippi state, it will have enough wherewithal that on the right, right night against its rival, it's in state hated in state rival things go well, it could pull off an upset. And that that to me uh, makes makes the SEC that much more tougher. Look what Auburn's done against Alabama. Brian Harson almost beat beat Alabama uh, a couple of years ago. When yeah, this, this past Auburn team, which um, you know wasn't anything special, was a particular struggle on offense yeah. in Hugh Freeze's first season. If not for the 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 miracle completion there sure. at the end, Alabama never wins that Iron Bowl. They don't go to the college football playoff, and I think that speaks to your point. When you yeah, with, even with Brian Harson, yeah. even er, though everybody portrayed Brian Harson and you did it a lot as an abject failure, he still almost beat a really good Alabama team with Bryce Young. All right, as we go, uh, we'd like to to say if if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, we always appreciate it if you hit the rate, subscribe, and review. Those ratings and reviews help us get in front of more listeners. John and I do this pod. Not for the paychecks, but for the love of our listeners. And we stay with you each and every week throughout the offseason. And who knows, maybe by this time next week, the college football playoff will have evolved again. If it does, we'll tell you all about it. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered.